This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Is Everyone Happier Than Me? An Honest Guide to the Questions That Keep You Up at Night. Written and narrated by Sarah Bragg and available everywhere March 19th. Karen Swallow Pryor, welcome to Viral Jesus. That natural love that we have for drama can make us distort what is true and good about how God works in human lives and kind of just diminish the power of his work by elevating one particular kind of story or one particular way that he works. And God doesn't work the same way all the time. He's more creative than that. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. Everyone I talk to on this show is someone I follow or was told to follow online. Most of the conversations you'll hear are with people I have never met in person, yet they've impacted how I think. What does it look like for Christians to enter the chat thoughtfully? Let's grow together on Viral Jesus. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Hello, friend. There's so much going on right now, right? With Israel and Palestine and the innocent victims that are trapped in this war. And I do want to take a moment and acknowledge how dark life kind of feels right now. I woke up this morning at like 4.30 in the morning. One of my best friends, Vimbo, texted me and said, I don't even know how to pray right now about the stuff I'm going through because it just feels like globally there's so much more I should be focused on. It's just like a very dark time, it feels like, to be a global citizen and see what's happening. And in light of this... In light of all that heaviness, I just thought I wanted to take a moment and share with you a little testimony because I think it is important that we look for hope, look for holes in the wall that will eventually become a door, right? When we can't see hope clearly, I think we have to look for it. And I was in a text group with three other women, again, viral Jesus. So I have a text group. It was when we started at Women I Had Not Met in Person, and there was four of us total, and all three of them were praying for to find a partner. And so, and I was praying for God to just give me really like a clear vision on what I'm supposed to do next in my own phase of ministry. And so we were praying together for each other regularly, and we decided to pray for 40 days. And our 40 days of prayer ended last year on October 4, 2022. And of course, they were praying to find spouses. And one of the girls was in a relationship and it actually ended in our 40 days of prayer. And we just felt like nothing happened. We had spent 40 days joining arms together, praying for one another, sending each other texts all the time, saying, I'm thinking of you, I'm praying for you. Here's what I felt, here's what I saw. And then nothing happened at the end of our 40 days. And we just felt depleted. I mean, I had fasted a few times in that 40 days and just nothing happened. So our little prayer group disbands. And periodically throughout the rest of this year, I would like send a message encouraging them. If something hit me, I would sometimes pray for them on a prayer walk in the morning. But I just want to tell you, here's my testimony. This week, one of the girls from that prayer group said her boyfriend, who was actually the one where things fell apart while we were praying at that time a year ago, they got back together 
And he ended up proposing to her on October 6, 2023, two days after what we perceived to be the failed deadline of October 4, 2022. So two days after, a year later, and God moved. And I just want to share that with you because I'm a big believer that we get to plant seeds, of course, in our own garden through prayer about what God is going to do in our lives. But I also believe in planting seeds in other people's gardens. And if their crop comes up before yours, now this girl got her answer. The rest of us haven't gotten an answer from God yet, but I believe God's in the neighborhood. And what I'm going to do is eat from her harvest. She has fruit being born, and I'm just going to eat off of that. And that's what's going to sustain me in my own season. You have to let yourself be fed from someone else's harvest. That is how we are able to be sustained until our own harvest is born. So that is my testimony this week. God remembered us. I don't think that day of him proposing on October 6th, I'm sure he knew nothing about our prayer group last year. I don't think that that date was ignored by God or just an accident. I believe that God remembered. So friend, and I know I do a devotional, you know this, every single Monday for the rest of 2023. So, But this is my little devotional for you on a Thursday. God remembers. God remembers. God sees. God is keeping track right now. All right, now that we have a little hope that we can cling to, let's check in with my best friend and co-blogger, Scarlett Longstreet. Scarlett is not a Christian, remember? And so today I just wanted to ask her in a safe space, what is her vibe? Like, what are the vibes you get on Christian influencer culture when you get on Instagram? What's the vibe there as an outsider to it? How does it strike you? And I also want to ask her what she likes and what she doesn't like about what she sees. So here's that conversation on safe space. So I thought it would be fun to ask you, and and I mean, I don't know who this would be fun for. It's fun for me. I don't know how many other people, somebody might be offended, but I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts kind of as an outsider to Christian influencer culture? What are your thoughts on Christians online besides me? Are you following any Christians online that you like? If you find somebody that you like, that's doing Christian content. What are you liking about it? What's drawing you in? I'm just curious. I would say that unlike many people, I don't necessarily use Instagram or other social media platforms to escape. I think a lot of people are looking for their influencers to not really have strong opinions on things. They might want them just for their fashion or their lifestyle. That's not me. So typically what I've noticed with evangelical influencers is it goes one of two ways. They either completely circumvent world issues, even I mean, current events, social justice, national affairs, because right, if you alienate people, it hurts your brand. The Mm. more people that you appeal to, the bigger your audience is and the more money you can potentially make. Or you have Christian influencers who might take a stance, but it's always maybe super vague, super strategic language. And neither of those things work for me personally. I don't want to (laughs) escape. I go to social media because 
I want to connect with people who share my values. Uh, so I like when I can see your values, even if they don't necessarily align. I want you to be upfront about it. But I think that's very different from a lot of people. Yeah. And I, I'd say, like, I'm just listening to you and thinking about myself. Like, I think my Instagram presence is very much, I hope, like my real life and how I communicate in real life. I'm not somebody that brings up conflict in real life conversation, not in a large group, like maybe one-on-one with a really good friend. But otherwise, I like to like kind of build relationship with people based off what we do have in common without hitting on something super controversial. And the reason I bring this up is I just thought this was so fascinating. I saw, I'm actually not going to say who it was, but just a massive Christian. I mean, many, many millions of people follow this person. And they had somebody speak at their conference and another celebrity who's outside of kind of the Christian celebrity, just another celebrity. And when I went to that other celebrity's page of them speaking at this other Christian's conference, all of these comments from their people were very upset with them saying like, you would speak at an anti-LGBT rally. Like this was absolutely not an anti-LGBT rally. I don't even know what this particular Christian stance is on the LGBT community, but because they were a Christian, people who were outside of that demographic just assumed if you would go there, that means that you believe in X, Y, and Z. And as somebody who's so deeply entrenched, I think in Christian culture, I was really surprised by the backlash that they got just being associated with another celebrity who happens to be a celebrity in their Christian space. So I was just curious what your thoughts were on that. So have you had somebody that you follow that's a Christian that you feel like does it really well? And just, I guess, talk to me a little bit about what that is that you saw. First, I just want to touch on, if you're an outsider, I think it's easy to use that stereotype, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you're a Christian, you must not be affirming to Mm -hmm. LGBTQ people and issues and things like that. I think that's an assumption that can be easy to make because the people who are non-affirming are typically the loudest. Yeah. So, yes. And if you're an outsider, I think it's easy for me to be like, oh, this must not be a safe space because those are the the non-safe spaces are the ones that you hear from the most, those people. But there are, you know, affirming Christians, of course. That's something to look for. Uh, And also, I just want to say, I don't expect a statement on every issue, right? Right. Especially, I feel like if you don't know anything educated about it, that's just not my personality. If I if it's not in my lane, I probably won't speak to it unless I've read. Let's take, for example, what's happening in Israel. And I know Kylie Jenner had made a post saying, I stand with Israel. And she like lost a million followers because people were for some reason equating Hamas to people of Palestine, which I'm not educated on the Middle East. So I can't make sweeping statements, but people were really mad at Kylie Jenner for they felt like making the statement, which ignores all of these people in the Gaza area who are, you know, essentially without the ability to go to their homeland. I mean, what are we expecting in some ways, I think, from our influencers that we're following? Do we always need a statement? We don't always need a statement. I, at some point, I care about things. So I just want to know that you care about things. It doesn't have to be, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be all of the things. And, you know, listen, there's human suffering in the town that I'm in right now. There are women and children and men who don't 
who don't have food, who don't have housing. I think it can be a lot to expect people to stop living your life as if human suffering isn't all around us. We would all be paralyzed. Right. I just want to know that someone I'm following is a human and that maybe there's a little more depth to them. But in general, yeah, I don't need you to be making a statement all the time on everything. Yeah, I like that, Scarlett. I want to know that you care about something and I want to know what you are willing to put your neck out there for. I think that's a fantastic way to look at it. You know, with Scarlett and I, no matter where you fall on some of these ideas we've talked about with us, it is always a safe space. I love our guest today. She is smart. And what I love about a smart person is when they are also humble. She is so humble and she is so wise. I am just a big fan of Karen Swallow Pryor. I think this is her third time coming on the podcast and we've only had four seasons. So what does that tell you? I love Karen Swallow Pryor. Remember, if you like this episode, make sure to share it with a friend, share it to your Instagram story, leave us a review. We had so many reviews, by the way, come in last week. So thank you for that. Rate us on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Karen Swallow Pryor is a reader, writer, and professor. She is the author of The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. She also has a monthly column for Religion News Service. Her writing has appeared, of course, in Christianity Today, New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and Vox. So we are back with basically my Viral Jesus co-host at this point, Karen (laughs) Swallow Pryor. This is episode number three for you. Wow. Yes. I was having this conversation with Esau McCauley, and he's very jealous of you. Oh. Right now, because (laughs) I told him, I said, Esau's been on like two and a half times, like 2.5, because one was very short. And I said, Karen is actually my guest that I've had on the most. And he was feeling very sad about that. So right now, I just want you to know you reign. Uh, well, you know, competing with Esau, <laughs> setting the, the bar high. So I'm all in for that. <laughs> so at this point, you are my co-host, okay? So we're okay. just going to have a conversation and the people already know who you are. I don't even have to explain right. anything. Wonderful. Karen Swallow Pryor is back, y'all. Okay. I want to start with a post that you did on threads. How are you liking threads, by the way? I like asking people this. What do you think? <sighs> I miss the old Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, that and five bucks will get me a cup of coffee. So I I think Threads needs, you know, it needs to some time. I think it also took me a long time to warm up to Twitter. And then that got ruined. So so I'm reserving judgment on Threads. It's there and it's not Twitter. And so that's, you know, that's good enough for now. In some ways, don't you like that it's not Twitter? In some ways, I like Threads because I feel very anonymous on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do like, I just don't (laughs) understand how it, you know, when I'm reading the thread, it's just more complicated oh, to me. Oh, I so, see. Yeah. Sometimes can you not see people's yeah. replies or are you missing things? I can see it. Just, I just don't understand the codes or something like oh. the, the little symbols or something. I don't know what they so mean. So you just seen so. a Threads tutorial and then you're ready to Probably. jump in and be an apologist Probably, for Threads. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. Okay. Well, yeah, here's what yeah. you threaded, Karen. You said this. What I don't know if that's a thing you threaded, but that's what I said. <laughs> you say this. What I believe hasn't changed. Whom I believe now that's a different story. How does Karen Swallow Pryor decide who she believes? 
Wow. You just start, you just dive right in, don't you? <laughs> okay. Inspired. So, yeah. So, I mean, full disclosure, I think I'm going through that process right mm. now of figuring it out. However, what I have learned, I, it's safe to say I have learned, you know, we're all learning a lot these pa- always, but in these past few years, you know, the foundations have kind of shifted. Yeah. And I think I'm learning to pay more attention to my gut and to red mm. flags. I've, I've often excused things like, oh, that's just a cultural difference or, oh, that's just how they do things here. You know, those sorts of yeah. excuses that you make for people. And then it's like, no, this is not how anyone should do things. <laughs> you know, right? So, yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah. I, I don't think I've always had the correct doctrine of not putting too much trust in human beings. Right. But you know, I have put weight and, and, you know, like a lot of issues that I, that maybe I haven't done the original mm. research or read the original languages. I'm like, okay, so I trust this person. So therefore I trust their interpretation and application. And now I'm like, you know, if I don't trust this person anymore, then I'm not sure I trust, you know, their interpretation mm. and application and, you know, multiply that several times over. And so, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been doing that all along. And, um, but this is the moment we're in now and we're all learning. And I, I'm just trusting that the Lord is going to let something beautiful come out on the other side for us and for his bride. I am, you know, almost 40. I am still learning how to trust my gut. And mm. I do think that that's something, especially as women, like we need to talk about more. I try to talk about it more with my students because it's, it's wild how I will make excuses for people mm-hmm. or behavior because I, I just don't want to, I, I don't ever want to assume the worst of anybody. So that's part of like my character and personality, but it's gotten me in trouble, Karen. So yeah, we need to learn how to trust our gut. Same here, same here, you know, and, and not to drop a name, I don't think she'll mind, but there was a little Instagram thread that someone else started and Lisa Sharon Harper yeah. had put a comment on that thread about, you know, I'm just paraphrasing, but about trusting your body, you know, like your mm. body's signals. And I responded and I said, you know, that it took me so long to learn to do that. You know, so we had this yeah. little conversation. So I think she said something like, you know, evangelicalism teaches you not to trust your body. Yeah. Right. And so I'm I like, wonder mm, if that's part of it. Yeah. You know, I, I guess I'm, I'm still evangelical. So I'm always I'm quick to defend evangelicalism. But I of also course. just think it's like modernity. Right. And yeah. enlightenment and that ration, that emphasis on the rational mm. thinking. We, we have done a lot to neglect our bodily response, aesthetic response. Um, and it's really it's, it's not either or it's both. And Karen, in the end of your book, you talk about a conversation you were having with a disillusioned evangelical. As you mentioned evangelicals, I said, OK, this is my segue. You mentioned a conversation you were having with a disillusioned evangelical and they asked you, why are you still a Christian? Mm-hmm. Can you share with us what your answer to them was? You essentially said, I don't know if I would be had I been born later in the Christian cultural landscape. What, what does that mean? Talk to us about that conversation. Mm, yeah, yeah. I was having this conversation with some other younger friends of mine just in, in the past couple of days because there have been so many books coming yeah. out that are sharing people's you know, either their their deconstruction or their deconversion because of the bad experiences they had in an evangelical church. And and so I was observing because, you know, because I'm 
much older than you and probably all of your listeners, <laughs> uh, but I have been teaching, you know, young yeah. evangelicals at colleges and universities for a couple decades now, more. And I've watched what they've gone through and how being raised in this, and my friends were agreeing with me that this, something happened like around in the 90s. And it probably has a lot to do with, you know, even before the digital age, just sort of the blowing up of Christian publishing and yes. paraphernalia, books and movies and all those things, which set before us sort of images. And there was a sort of mainstreaming of abusive cultures in and authoritarian cultures within evangelicalism. Now, I didn't grow up in those, but mm. I watched my students come through who had, and it took me a while to see and for them to see. And I understand now why some of them, you know, they're disentangling yeah. or deconstructing or, you know, there's lots of different words you can use and lots of different outcomes. I know what I'm going through now and it's rough. Um, I had a very strong, solid Christian foundation in my home, in my early church life that was not caught up in all this marketing and all this, you know, in these programs and cultures. And so I just don't know what would have happened, mm. how harder it would be if I had had to disentangle it from all of that, as I see so many people, you know, a decade or more younger than me going through. Your latest book, Congratulations. It's called Evangelical Imagination. Can you first define the term for us, evangelical? Do you, what, what does that term even mean? And then tell us, where did this title come from? Yeah. So, I mean, I do spend a lot of time citing the sources, you know, historians and theologians for what evangelical means. And so I'm not like inventing okay. a new one. I, lot, I know the term is very contested in recent years because it's been making headlines and so forth. But there's actually, there's a lot of history and, and scholarship on this and and is a movement that's 300 years old began in England and in early America and th that term was used that term has been used but it's just been used differently now and even in the 20th century made headlines Newsweek declared the year of the evangelical or something like that and so yeah the mm. word kind of has been around for a long time but often gets re-examined and so basically the, the movement is defined by the centrality of scripture, the centrality of Christ's crucifixion, the centrality of the conversion experience or being born again, mm. um, and then activism too. Evangelicals have always been activists from the time of the British abolitionist movement that saw many evangelicals fighting to abolish slavery to today's social justice movement or anti-abortion movement. Like all of those things that evangelicals, including myself, are so passionate about is, is sort of part of what we inherited from being evangelicals. Mm. And I think that's a good part, but they all, you know, can have sort of a dark underside too. How did that come into the title of the book, The Evangelical Imagination? Of course, I teach literature and I teach a lot of art and culture. So I'm always thinking about the imagination. But I also, in my teaching, I, you know, for years have emphasized biblical worldview. Um, it's been, you know, a real passion of mine. But I have come to realize through experience and through reading um, thinkers like James K. Smith, who's been very influential, that, you know, when we focus everything on sort of our cognitive, intellectual application of biblical principles to issues, like which is a completely sort of a, a rational mental activity like we were talking about, that only goes so far. Right. As Smith points out, we are, you know, drawing from Augustine, we are desiring creatures before we are thinking creatures. We're not just heads on a stick, as he famously says. And so yes. that being true, we have to dig deeper and look like imagination, like there's so 
many things about that word and I get into a lot of it in the book, but like, it's like an image. We are made in the image of God. We are formed in his image and his image is pressed in Mm. upon us. So imagination has everything to do with formation, the things beneath the surface that shape us. I draw on Charles Taylor, who talks about the social imaginary as kind of a a collective pool of precognitive stories, myths, ideas, and legends that, that drive us, that give us a vision for the good life without us necessarily even being consciously aware of it. It's just like like underneath the surface, it sets our expectations and drives us in ways Mm. that we don't necessarily think about. And so that's what's being formed by the stories and the images, the commercials on television, the Instagram, the TikTok, the Snapchat, all of those things are putting these images up in front of us, which is again, why I think when we go back to that period, starting in the 90s, when so many images of what it means to be you know, a good Christian and to be submissive and to trust your leaders and to be in a church community. Like there were images put up that were distorted or more of them that were distorted, that set up expectations Mm. uh, and then failed. And that's why we see so many young people and older people deconstructing because these images didn't work. They weren't true. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Something that you mentioned in the book is conversion stories and how that plays into the evangelical imagination. What do you mean when you say in the book, you say something like the conversion story was almost as important as the conversion itself. Mm. What do you mean when you say that? Well, let let me back up a little and say, you know, again, as someone who teaches literature and loves words and language, I think that's, you know, what we tell ourselves about anything that happened can be more important. I mean, it's our interpretation of what happened that determines so much. It's our subjective experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are facts and there is truth, of course, but how we understand something that happened is everything. And so that's true being human, but that's also true of 
the role that conversion and conversion stories play in evangelicalism, as I mentioned before, one of the distinctives of evangelicalism is the emphasis on conversion. The Bible says we must be born again. I believe we must have a conversion experience. But then, you know, the Bible also encourages us and, and provides models for telling about that conversion experience. And we are, as human beings, we love stories. We are storied creatures. Um, and so, of course, we want to tell that story. But again, if we're given only certain models or mostly certain models, like dramatic yes. ones, like, oh, yes. I was, you know, before I was this way and now I'm this way. And, and those are the ones that get rewarded, then we might be, you know, incur- I, you know, I'll give an example of someone who embellished their testimony for this reason. <laughs> we know that happens. But also, even more subtly, we can feel a little less than if we don't have wow, that yeah. dramatic story. The dramatic stories are wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But also the story of the small child who receives Jesus when she is young and lives a quiet life that is faithful and undramatic. And, you know, that's a powerful story, too. It doesn't have to be filled with all the drama. And so that's an example of how something that's as important, as powerful as our testimony can get distorted and give us a false image of what it really is. I cannot agree with you more. I am somebody who doesn't have a huge story. I mean, I've, I've just kind of always my entire life loved God. Genuinely, I mean, I remember being a little child in my room and just asking him to speak to me, to hear his voice audibly. I mean, I've just always had that innate thing. And so it makes me sad when I, it, like I talk to young people who seem to think that if you don't have this dramatic experience where God like turns your entire life around, then there's no ministry opportunity for you. Mm. There's no space for you to tell your story of just mm-hmm. what it looks like to walk with God faithfully all these years. Mm-hmm. And so I just totally agree with you. I think we do a disservice to you know so many Christians when mm-hmm. we only highlight a certain type of story, mm-hmm. not that it's not. Do you know where we get that from? Is that from Paul? Is that our obsession <laughs> with Paul, with the big road to Damascus experience? Well, of course that's a you know, an amazing story. It is. Right. You know, I don't think it's presented in the Bible as though it's the normative experience. I think it's, number one, it's being human. I mean, long before the church age, we love dramatic poems, epic poems and plays and human beings love drama that, you know, that's part of it. But then again, I think that natural love that we have for drama and a few examples can make us distort what is true Mm. and good about how God works in human lives and kind of just diminish the power of his work by elevating one particular kind of story or one particular way that he works. And God doesn't work the same way all the time. He's more creative than that. It's the enemy who's not creative, right? And who uses the same old sorry devices all the time. So really ends up diminishing our understanding of God and who he is and how he works when we just stick to kind of formulas. What are your thoughts on this new focus a lot of evangelicals have? We've brought up the term several times already of deconstruction. Why do you think this has become such a big focus of our imagination right now is how to deconstruct? Well, one of the final chapters in my book is on the Reformation. And I, you know, I think that's an important period to kind of look to not just for, you know, the doctrine Mm. and the theology, which is wonderful, but also as a kind of reminder 
to us that the church has been through these crises before. And that's not the only one, obviously, in church history. It's just the one, you know, that as an evangelical that I know the most and think about the most. And so, you know, there were abuses and corruption, so many kinds in the church that helped to bring about the Reformation. It was the printing press that helped to spread those mm-hmm. ideas so that people could realize, oh, you know, it's not just me who's thinking things are maybe out of whack, or it's not just me who's been suffering. And then the correct doctrine was able to be spread because the printing press was available. And so we're in a similar age. I think I might have talked about this from a different perspective on a previous episode with you, but like the digital age is kind of a parallel of that. We have this new technology that allows information Mm. and stories and experiences and events to spread across the world in a split second. And so that means that People can share their stories, share what happened to them, share ideas, share errors that, you know, they see needing correction. And so, you know, it's like time's up (laughs) for some of these folks. And the the digital world, with all of its flaws and all the damage that it's doing, also brings us this opportunity for everyone to see it's it's not just me. Um, There is something wrong here. And that's really hard. I think a lot of us are, you know, feeling the hardness of that. But it's also, I mean, think of the reformers who were being burned at the stake. You know, they were exposing things and helping by God's grace to refine the church. And I think we may be in a similar moment. And so that's hard, but it gives me hope because Mm. it's not just about me. It's about the history that's going to be written after I'm gone. My caution when it comes to social media anyway and airing our our grievances is that, and obviously, like, I think there. We, we need to be able to speak honestly and truthfully, but I do worry because sometimes I see people who realize, of course, like hate and vitriol will spread so much faster mm-hmm, um, than mm-hmm, just like sound mm-hmm. judgment, right? Or patience. Right, right, and so right. I, I worry that there is a lot of um, people today online that are building like community off of mm. just anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that worries me. You know, Mm -hmm. no, I mean, that that should worry you. It worries me, too. But I think, again, it's almost inevitable, not entirely, but correction of a pendulum that has swung too far in one direction will go Mm. far in the opposite direction. Now, being aware of that and understanding that's, again, part of human nature, we should do all that we can to avoid that. But collectively, it's just it's just part of the process. You know, this goes back to virtue ethics, another passion of mine, like virtue is the moderation of two extremes, an extreme of excess and an extreme of deficit. It's very hard to modulate either extreme. Oh, that's really good, Karen. That's what I feel like the church needs. Is virtue. Amen, sister. Yes. Yes. Please talk to us about that. (laughs) When you just said that, that made so much sense to me. And that is what I think young people need to see modeled in their church. Again, so virtue, if basic definition, drawing from Aristotle, who, you know, confirmed by later church fathers, um, is that, you know, virtue is the moderation between two extremes golden mean. Wow. Even even the Bible talks about, you know, let your moderation be known to all men or your reasonableness. And so you can apply that concept to anything. So 
when you're in a situation where someone has, you know, responded with extreme anger, say, you know, the response is not to be angry in the opposite extreme direction, but to moderate. But we see it so much. We see one error attempting to be corrected by an error in an equal and opposite direction. Again, that's human, but we have to fight that. And and the Bible is so clear in so many ways that we have that power, but we have to really be intentional about it. I mean, what is the fruit of the Spirit? But you know, the uh, qualities that allow Mm. us to not react in, you know, an opposite extreme. But I think, I I thank you for letting me expand on this, because I think we often don't even realize, we don't know. It's just a human impulse to, you know, and and some of it has to be where, I mean, like, if, if you are hurt, then you've got to let that out somehow. You've got to acknowledge it. Yeah. We can't, you know, it's repressing and oppressing and suppressing that has allowed the hurt to fester for so long. That oppression and suppression and repression is the opposite. It's the deficit to the excess where we need to teach and model and encourage and allow for the moderate responses that express the truth. The problem I think one problem is that even moderate responses to, say, abuse end up being, you know, painted as though they're immoderate. No, it's just, you know, I mean, I can think, you know, I can think of a lot of abuse survivors who've offered very moderate responses in exposing the truth, but they still get painted, you know, as bad or wrong. Mm. Um, So that's not a moderate response either. And that's, I think, part of... I just think some of it comes from chronically being online, you know, and not having conversations with people in person, face to face. I'll never, I, in one of the last books I've read, I've mm. been reading a lot about psychological safety. I'm very mm. interested in this concept of psychological safety. And one of the last books I read said, when people lose belonging, mm. they will swap mm. belonging for attention. And I see that, I think, playing out a lot online Mm -hmm. where I feel excluded from something. And it absolutely, like, Mm -hmm. it may be an Mm -hmm. injustice towards you. But due to that exclusion, my response is to get as much negative attention around this Mm. as I possibly can, which then to me just seems like it's coming from an unhealthy place. So I guess what I'm saying is it's not that I think we have a problem with like anger. Mm -hmm. I think what bothers me is like the monetization of our Mm -hmm. anger. That's what doing it for the algorithm response, because I know that this is going to kick the hornet's nest and upset people. I just... Well, yeah. I mean, I think there are two things going on on here. I think there is a genuine economy of grift out there where people, you know, are benefiting financially from the algorithms. But I also think that because I see it over and over, I think that, you know, that kind of outburst online that does bring attention doesn't just bring attention. It brings a sense of belonging to those who are, you know, responding favorably or positively to the person who is expressing this. And so it's just, it is still, I think, a search for belonging when it's not just, you know, for the clicks that bring in the monetization. Yeah. And I have to be clear because I know somebody's listening right now and is getting upset. I am absolutely not saying that people who have experienced some type of abuse or injustice should not be able to say right. something. That is not my point. I'm, right. I'm really talking about the monetization of yes. it. Yes. And also, and, and again, we have to think about what outcome do we want long-term from 
our exposure of of evil or corruption, right? I mean, the easy thing is to go on social media. That really has, you know, has brought about some good. Some accountability for sure. Yeah, yeah, some accountability, right. But, But some of us who are able need to really be in it for the long game and to, you know, there's still a place I think for seeking, you know, not burning down the bridges, but removing the rotten parts and building up something better. Martin Luther King Jr.'s philosophy Mm. is it is so easy to tear Mm. down, but God really needs a generation of people who are willing to build. And I just, I really personally feel convicted Mm. by that. Talk to us about the history of purity culture. Mm. And how you think it has shaped our evangelical conversations. Mm. Well, now I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in purity culture. Again, thank right. God I was brought up before that was such, you know, like <laughs> I was taught up to obey God's moral law, uh, you know, because it's his moral law. No one made me feel like breaking that particular law was going to do more damage to my life in future than any other thing. You know, that that's what I think, you know, purity Mm. culture is, is somehow putting so much more emphasis on eternal happiness and marital bliss on, you know, obedience of this one thing, which again, it's about all of our life and all of our faith and growth and sanctification in every area, not just one particular sins bring particular consequences, sure, but none of them in God are, you know, are life changing on their own. I mean, he he can overcome any of them. In my book, the way I address purity culture, and this was really kind of the genesis of the book, was right. teaching Victorian literature in which yes. you know the, you you encounter. Which I love Victorian literature. I love that age. It's so interesting. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, as Charles Dickens says. <laughs> um, but there were lots of literature around what was called the woman question. Uh, lots of literature dealing with anxiety over women being, yes. you know, the, the separation of women into the into the private sphere versus the public sphere, or putting the woman up on a pedestal in a literal famous poem called the "Angel in the House," mm. seeing her as an angel. And also particular favorite are the novels that deal with women's virtue and chastity, um, whether it's kind of the preservation of that or the double standard as is famously dealt with in one of my favorite novels, Thomas Hardy's Tess of the D'Urbervilles, which is the whole novel is about what happens. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but what happens to a, a young, innocent girl when she loses her virtue, not by her own will, and all of the double standard of the supposedly Christian society that she lives in fall to bear on her because the men are allowed to be sexually impure regardless of how, mm. whereas a woman who loses her virginity, no matter how, is considered ruined. And, and so this novel deals with this powerfully. Reading this literature in evangelical classrooms, I came face to face and had so many conversations in the classroom, in my office, with students who had been taught these lessons and were bearing Mm -hmm. the very, very difficult burdens of these lies about God and his love and their moral status and their and their faith. And so kind of in the classroom, we would just say, well, is this idea Victorian or is it biblical? Because it's clear that there is a difference. And so this cultural baggage that we have, just no matter which culture we're talking about, it needs to be distinguished between what is truly biblical versus what's just kind of been wrapped up as biblical by our culture. And so Mm. purity culture was one of the 
um, motivations for writing this book, even though I, you know, I don't address it directly. I, I address it more broadly in my chapter on domesticity, you know, and talk about these, you know, rigid roles for masculine behavior and feminine that that's all, you know, was very cemented in the Victorian age. And we've just inherited that. Karen Swallow Pryor is the author of The Evangelical Imagination. You can get this wherever books are sold. Karen, my co-host, <laughs> the show is called Viral Jesus. What do you think it means to be a Christian when we are online? Well, I think what it means to be a Christian online is the same thing that it means when we're offline. It means being transparent. It means um, displaying the fruit of the Spirit. It means pointing to Christ, whether explicitly or implicitly. And I think it's actually a good challenge for Christians because it does, the online life presents us so many opportunities to engage in sort of cheap, destructive behavior because the accountability Mm. is not there. It's a real test of virtue, human virtue and Christian virtue to behave online as we would in person. And I know that there are a lot of like rude people out there who Mm. might behave that rudely in person as they do online. But I think most of them, I really think most of them, if you're in a room at a party talking with a variety of people, (laughs) I don't think most of the people who say those those shocking, rude, you know, triggering, um, grifting things online would stand in the middle of your living room and say the same things. I mean, maybe a few, but most of them wouldn't. And so I actually think of the online world as a mission field. And I don't think everyone is called to it, just like everyone isn't called to every other mission field. But I believe as Christians that there is ministry to be done there and just simply in how we bear ourselves Mm. there and how we engage with people. And we have to remember that even if we're engaging with one person, there are 10 or 100 or 1,000 people who are watching that engagement. And that is a powerful, powerful opportunity to be a light. Karen Swallow Pryor is the author of The Evangelical Imagination. You can get it right now wherever books are sold. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. So what did we learn from our conversation with Karen Swallow Pryor? Number one, Karen says that as a woman, It took her a long time to learn how to trust her own body's signals and the warning she was feeling in her body when it just felt like something's off. Trust your body, trust your gut. We have, of course, a rational brain, but it is not to discount our emotions or our physiological responses. Number two, Karen says human beings love drama, but that our testimonies are no less valid for the person who has just always loved God and always stayed in church and always tried to be faithful. Your testimony is no less valid than somebody who has this really complex and beautiful and massive and shocking and dramatic conversion story. We should tell those stories too. Both stories show us about how God works in everyday people's lives. Your testimony, either of God totally transforming and upending your life or just shepherding you day by day by day are both important stories to tell. Number three, I love this. She said, we need virtuous Christians. Karen says that virtue 
is the moderation between two extremes. I want you to write that down and remember it. Virtue is the moderation between two extremes. At a time when online communication has really rewarded extreme views, I do think we need more Christians of virtue. And if I know anything about you, if I know anything about you and this community, it's that you are trying and working toward being a person of virtue. May we keep going in that endeavor. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Next week, I sit down with Dr. Scott McKnight and we talk Revelation, like the Bible book of Revelation. Oh my goodness, I adore him. I am loving his book. It's called Revelation for the Rest of Us. I can't wait for all my fellow Bible nerds to just geek out with me (laughs) and Dr. McKnight next week. Also, don't forget on Monday for the rest of 2023, I'll share a little devotional with you. It will always be under 10 minutes. So you can listen while you go to work or drop the kids at school. But my, my hope for this is that it will help you face your week in faith. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks. And you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus.